Okay. So we're live uh, with on the Idea Market podcast, actually going live for the first time. Uh, we're here with Michael Lyos, the CEO of Idea Market, and we're joined by Michael Beck. Now, before we get into uh, your background, Michael, I believe, Mike, you want to talk about how you first met Michael. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this story because this is all you've been going on about for like yes, the last I've week. Been, I've been making sure. Yes, I've been making sure not to not to tell it so that it's fresh. Um, uh, Mr. Beck here is perhaps my oldest friend in crypto. When I when I first got into the industry, I was working for a uh, a healthcare crypto startup, and we were raising money, and I was going around to VCs to try to raise money. But I was like, I was a I was fresh, right? I barely knew the industry. It was just a few months in and it was just like, all right, you know, a full, full, full fake it till you make it mode. And, uh, I had the, I really appreciate that. Um, I had, you know, I had the basics down and knew like what to say in certain situations. And it was just a matter of like putting on the right face after that. And, um, Mike's experience in, in the healthcare industry made him very familiar with all the vicissitudes of trying to disrupt it with blockchain, of which I had no clue, right? So I was in this this meeting talking to a VC and Michael was there advising him. And after we had talked for a while, uh, Michael pretty much just said, now look, I've been doing this a long time. There's about 46,000 reasons this isn't going to work. Here's what they are. One, stuff. Two things, three stuff and things. And he was just very sweet and laid it out just like end to end and was obviously trying to help and not like shoot things down. And it was just awesome. And we've been friends ever since. He's a brilliant guy. I keep running into him in different locations all over the world. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to, to see your success with Union. And uh, I'm glad we found the time to talk. Thanks a lot, Mike. I, I really appreciate it. I really, you know, enjoyed that day. It was really great meeting you then. And, um, you know, I've like seeing how uh, you know things have progressed for you in the community and you know the way that you've decided to take your passion for you know blockchain and all other things you know forward and uh, you know thank you today uh, to you and james for having me on the podcast really really do appreciate it great cool. pleasure all right man so instead of sort of saying uh you know the typical who are you? What do you do? Question, Michael. We uh, we have a unique question here. If you were to develop a course, a boot camp, uh, the purpose of which was at the end of the boot camp, the people who had undertaken it would be as alike you as possible. A boot camp to create clones of you. What would that What would that look like in practice? Oh wow, uh, I'm I'm not sure I could answer that one. Um... You know, there, there are a lot of uh, formative experiences I feel like I've had along the way. Um, I mean, I don't come necessarily to blockchain uh, straight from, you know, background in computer science or systems. Um, I was actually a political economist by discipline. Um, I focused on monetary policy and international trade as an undergraduate. And I actually have a, uh, an MBA in marketing and finance. Um, technology was always something in the background for me. Um, I started off... Um, early on uh, testing video games and running bulletin board systems. Now I'm dating myself, um, eventually getting involved in that uh, newfangled worldwide web thing uh, that everyone was talking about. You know, the internet was uh, was new. Um, I wrote some early applications, um, uh, developed uh, what could have been uh, considered probably the first um, 
the first commercial application to let you upload a file through a web browser. Uh, and back in 96, that was a big deal. Um, did early electronic commerce work uh, for, um, you know, for large companies and uh, ultimately uh, started uh, trying to um, sell uh, data rooms uh, right as the bubble collapsed. Um, and uh, ran, uh, ran for cover into healthcare, uh, which is uh, where a lot of the formative experience Michael was referencing came from. Um, I was a lead enterprise architect for a Fortune 50 healthcare concern, and um, during that time um, was also an attendant of the Two Towers, uh, the Twin Towers downtown Manhattan, and uh, was running late to work that day. Uh, so I spent a, a large amount of time in my career uh, reconstituting assets after buildings collapsed. Um, taught me a lot about business continuity and also about, you know, teamwork and resilience. I found uh, my way uh, doing more technology and due diligence work uh, following that. And uh, think, uh, you know, ultimately uh, started a uh, small uh, information security company, a cryptography company uh, focused on uh, patient control over data. Uh, we got some intellectual property there and uh, I, um, you know, tried to get funding in 2008, and uh, 2008 is pretty much when the world stopped again. And uh, I ran for cover into, uh, of all places, Bear Stearns. So um, actually, that group uh, went whole into J.P. Morgan, um, and uh, I found myself at a large hedge fund um, working, uh, you know, in wealth management, uh, building out systems uh, to help um, manage uh, daily operations for, uh, you know, what was a, a global hedge fund. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of, you know, different stories that come together between healthcare information security and uh, wealth management since. Uh, a lot of the stuff that brought me to blockchain uh, was uh, someone saying, hey, you have uh, some intellectual property and in, uh, cryptography. Uh, what do you think about this cryptocurrency and blockchain stuff? Uh, so I wrote a private equity thesis back in uh, 20, uh, 2014, and that kind of drugged me uh, backwards, you know, into the depths of uh, what was blockchain and cryptocurrency, and I haven't been out since. So uh, that was really uh, where things started for me and where a lot of my formative community came from. Um, I think along the way, um, you know, the lessons learned are uh, there's always a path, uh, there's always a, a path forward uh, in one form or another. Uh, there's always a good community to be found. Uh, no matter how hard or how alone you think you might be. And, uh, you know, truthfully, uh, you know, you have to you have to be prepared uh, to find opportunities uh, because no one's going to give them to you. Um, that's pretty much, uh, you know, where I think everything has come together for me. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd say um, aside from uh, those things, um, I don't know what else the bootcamp would include. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, you know, some frequent flyer miles. And, uh, you know, is there any, just out of interest, is there, any, like, places. is there any, is there any books that you would think this absolutely has to be part of that course? Um, I don't think that there are necessarily any books, uh, but I do think that there's a, a willingness, uh, to learn. I mean, I, I did have a canon of books I came to along the way. I, I was one of those people who, while I was learning computer science, um, you know, I, I'd like to get some of the more formative texts to understand how people thought about problems way before I did, uh, because I found that there was a lot of continuity in the way that uh, problems have been solved, um, you know, from mainframe forward. There, there's a lot of continuity in thought. And uh, a lot of those principles uh, still, I think, you know, hold true today, you know, even as we think about decentralization and uh, newer languages and different approaches uh, to systems and system engineering. I think a lot of um, the techniques 
you know, that, that uh, we use that are successful stand uh, probably on the shoulders of things that came before. So um, I, I do like to think of things that I do inside of the canon and broader things that existed before me. And I'd like to think that if I'm going to pass something along, I have to contextualize what I do uh, to ensure that people can follow it, you know, after me. That's, that's, that's the short of, you know, how I do things. That makes sense. It seems like your appreciation for what's come before might might be larger than that of others. You know, with the rate of tech tech development, it kind of seems like because I because I kind of feel similarly about psychology. That a lot of the best work was written maybe a hundred years ago, and then there's kind of been a, a tradition that waxes and wanes since then. But the core the core of it is really much smaller than than the field. And it seems like there may be parallels with reading back into the annals of, of computer science and how problems are solved. You can see the sort of traditions or patterns that endure through that whole period and see what their continuation might look like now. Yeah, I mean, from 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 my perspective, um, you know, the, the, there's always new math. There's always people who try to reinvent things that they didn't know existed before. And as you have more knowledge that accumulates, you know, around um, you know certain certain industries, you find people wanting to take shortcuts and not necessarily going back because they want to solve today's problem today, you know, in a way that they've intellectualized it immediately with a set of requirements, not necessarily thinking about validating the experiences of people who aren't, you know, there at the table with them. So there, there's always an urgency. There's always a sense of urgency. There's always a team that doesn't necessarily have a lot of experience, um, and someone tasked with the um, with, with the need to, to solve, you know, the problem now. And as a result of that, you get a lot of emergent designs that don't have necessarily context, but might have some thought and some research, um, you know, by someone with a strong, you know, mind who's been put to solving the task. So it's not to discount necessarily everything that doesn't have that formal, you know, that formalism. Um, but there are a lot of times when those decisions then have to be refactored later because they don't scale. And that's, um, that, that's really the peril. You know, you're, you're always in a, um, you know, in systems specifically, you're always at a tension point between solving today's problem versus anticipating tomorrow's. And there's only so much a customer will deal with. Uh, some customers would say, well, you know, the design didn't, or the time didn't allow us to build a more robust design. Uh, other customers might say the programmer should have known better. So that really is where I, I think the line gets drawn between developers and architects. And uh, I think that that's also where the line gets drawn, you know, between, um, you know, paying willing customers and, and people who you may not necessarily want to work for as a systems person. So it's, um, you know, you, you kind of have to uh, measure out what the tolerance is in every environment that you work with and, uh, you know, prepare for the outcome. Yeah. Um, where, Regarding that tension, it sounds like you're definitely closer to the architect end of that spectrum, wanting to, you know, be in context in that in that canon. I, I'm wondering who who else are you seeing that's that's kind of doing this right in in the crypto space or otherwise? Like, there's a lot of froth and a lot of invention. Who else has a has a similar approach to this as you know, kind of build building on the shoulders of giants in that kind of reliable way or, or long long-term vision who's who's got the long time preference uh in that I mean, same sort of style 
I, I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, there, there are a lot of good, solid people who've come in, especially in the beginning around uh, the development of the layer ones that we appreciate today. Um, you know, who, who, who come to this with thinking about, you know, broader, broader system problems and then building community. Software is hard to begin with. Making open source software is harder. Making open source software where people can throw tomatoes on you, you know, at you on a daily basis, and you know, adjust your the value of your uh, chain, um, you know, because they like or don't like the way you're communicating with the community is uh, beyond harder than that. So um, I think crypto projects are probably the hardest type of software project, uh, specifically because you always have some level of external scrutiny. Uh, you always have some level of external accountability, both to you know team and also extended community. Um, it's not it's not easy stuff, and software itself is an easy stuff. There's lots of opportunities for software itself to go wrong, and then we like to say that blockchains are immutable, and um, you know that's really great. It means that uh, you know blockchains, it, what you put on a chain doesn't change, um, but um, you know the things that make software successful tend to be iterative. You know that you can take tiny steps forward, and that you can repeat or replace as you need to. You know through customer feedback. So there's a lot of this idea of building software, and you know to use the back to the future expression, breaking the flux capacitor. You can't necessarily you know go back. You know you might have to build token contract too and get everyone to come along with you. In which case you know your your community fractures because not everyone wants to take the new token, uh, or the chain fractures because not everyone wants to take the new mechanism for consensus, or you know so there are always those perils that happen in blockchain that don't happen anywhere else, it actually kind of lends itself more to thinking about waterfall software development than agile software development. When everyone thinks about the pearls of old system engineering, where, you know, you had to know everything that you were going to do up front and then make sure you hit the marks going forward and not take any feedback in between because you might lose people along the way, um, you know, versus, you know, what people do now in terms of tighter, more iterative, user-validated um, sets of code that necessarily capture all the non-functional requirements around things like logging and security and, re, you know, resilience, but, um, you know, eventually find a way to get there. Um, here, I think those things are expected to be built in. So uh, projects, I think, that are successful uh, tend to have more robust stories. And um, I hate to say it, um, team members who probably failed in other projects. So that's, um, you know, I, I think the leading indicator of success in most software is, you know, failure someplace else. That makes sense. Why, why do you hate to say that? It sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah, but it makes you also wonder, you know, when you get behind a new project, you know, are you expecting it to fail just because someone came to the table, you know, and they're new? And there, there's, there are a lot of good reasons why new people also succeed, you know, and a lot of that may come down to, you know, no need for them to necessarily rely on what you and I would refer to the canon of things that happened before. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and you cheer for them because that means that you can pretty much disregard the canon that came before if they are successful. You know, if you think about it, how many search engines were there before Google? Uh, I don't you know, know, five or six, probably. I don't know. But, uh, but they were all. I crap. mean, I, I'm, th I'm thinking about maybe 10 or 12, you know, yeah, okay. uh, including things like ABC Go and Microsoft Network and AOL. And, you know, when, when you think about the contemporaries there now, if someone says, well, you're building a search engine, you only have to compare it to one thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, just like if you're building a social network community, you don't have to think about CompuServe anymore. You know, you, you go directly to Facebook. So it's 
you know, you would hope that, you know, those types of things evolve and change, you know, um, you know, and work, you know, to our benefit, because then we do learn new things. And, you know, as an industry, we're standing taller. Yeah, makes perfect sense. When it well, just out of interest, when these when these say new, like new innovations or new iterations or like a phase change in technology does happen, how much do you think, uh, you know, right place, right time factors in? Or do you think that genuinely is, uh, you know, they, they've, clicked into something which is which is sort of like a truth uh it's both i mean i i think uh you know truth is asymptotic you know it really requires context there's no objective truth it's just a community of people who are willing to accept it <laughs> so you know so someone comes in and a, you know a person or technology meets your market and that market's robust enough in order to sweep it forward you know mm-hmm. That's, uh, I, I think, what we see. And, um, you know, there are a lot of blockchains that do incredibly well at being able to engage their community and get people to build on top of, um, you know, on their approaches. I mean, I, I'd say, for instance, um, one of the biggest successes in blockchain that we can look to is, you know, the success of the Ethereum virtual machine. You know, it's used among so many different chains at this point. And what it does is, um, you know, pretty much whatever any other, you know, runtime virtual machine would do. However, you know, it's something that people don't feel like they need to recreate. It's created a basis uh, for skill that's expected among, you know, blockchain developers. It's created, you know, a community of um, people who know the vulnerabilities that uh, blockchain developers can introduce, you know, into a Turing complete environment. It's created, um, you know, the opportunity uh, to develop a whole generation of applications that otherwise would not be available. And then because it's portable, code that's written for one is portable between chains, it's now provided an opportunity for someone to not only decide what type of code they want to execute, but the context in which that code executes, you know, in terms of what consensus mechanism or what backing chain is actually sponsoring those transactions. So, you know, that, that that's a great example of, you know, it's not necessarily perfect, but it works. And, um, you know, it's allowed, you know, an industry to spring forward, uh, primarily because of the community that's been formed around it. With respect to the community aspect is, is really, it, it's interesting how in this, in this technical field, how much of the success depends on completely non-technical things that the human element of, of community and consensus and just how, uh, inexorably distant that is from tech that you can't compute agreement into into a thing it has to come from you know the meat layer first and um i think that's kind of underappreciated in in general i think there's a lot of um development that seems to come from an if you build it they will come sort of a place like an overemphasis on on the technical um and yet the the sort of weather around the market kind of ends up determining what takes off like where the where the cyclones end up forming and where the big you know centers of, of activity end up happening um, there's there's stories of you know first mover advantage kind of being the predominant thing or stories of trade-offs between quality and speed like I think this is not my area of area of area of expertise. You're probably a veritable museum on this stuff. And I'm just talking about like Ethereum and JavaScript, both of which were kind of, you know, they were early as examples of their kind.
kind and, and kind of took over the world with all their imperfections. And do you see a pattern as to like when that's the, when that's the determining factor and when it's not like, I'm thinking kind of like Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Like sometimes there's a breakthrough and it changes the whole game and even, and it might be messy. And sometimes there's a, a more progressive sort of cumulative intra paradigm evolution. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, the thing that was interesting in the case of, you know, talking about Ethereum, you know, eating the world was, um, you know, before then it was forking Bitcoin and making changes to, you know, so many points in the software and then having to build, find a group of people who are willing to validate that new chain. And chain validation technically should have economies of scale, but with differences in algorithm, it doesn't. So what Ethereum basically said is, in my mind at least, that, um, you know, the functionality that sits on top of the chain should be independent, something of independent consideration to the validation of the community that's supporting the validation of the chain. And that is, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, what made it revolutionary to think about, you know, what is a smart contract? You know, because a smart contract really sits there where, you know, before it used to be the sum of inputs equals the sum of outputs on a ledger. And, you know, where, where typically that equal sign sat, you know, now you have a computational feature that um, does so much more than the sum of inputs equals the sum of outputs. So can, I, I think that, you know, it, it created a utility layer, you know, around uh, what otherwise was, uh, you know, distributed computation. And, um, you know, that, that was something that was needed. Uh, now, before that, of course, you know, there were things like the search for extraterrestrial life and Napster and, um, God, I'm dating myself with this stuff. Um, so uh, um, uh, track servers and, uh, you know, gopher search. I mean, there was a lot of- Now there, you're there dating were, yourself. I know yeah, Napster. Yeah. I know Napster. Yeah. There you go. But, um, you know, the basic idea was, you know, there were there were lots of um, communities where you could connect a server and, you know, have people browse your local directories and download stuff. But the computation was always local to one machine and then shipped back to another machine. Um, the idea of every node having a complete copy of everything operating at that time, you know, it was um, not only redundant, but it was almost, uh, you know, it was almost impossible given, you know, general consumer bandwidth. So, um, yeah. you know, we, we have, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there are some places where, you know, the, the time and the technology meet the opportunity. I think if you were to have introduced something like uh, Bitcoin earlier, then uh, when Bitcoin was introduced, it may have been really difficult to get off the ground. Um, and I think that a lot of the systems concepts, you know, were perfected prior, um, you know, in, in various other forms. I mean, think about, um, you know, if you, if, if you even think about something like uh, uh, SHA-256, I mean, during the Clinton administration, that was not actually suitable for export. There were actually trade, you know, you, that was actually considered strong cryptography. So. <laughs> You know, so there were all kinds of things that had to, you know, kind of had to happen, you know, in terms of open cryptography projects, um, you know, um, issues with, um, you know, licensing and support. Uh, there was a lot more proprietary software, you know, prior to 2008, um, you know, then then after 2008, if you think about things like CollabNet and uh, SourceForge and, uh, you know, a lot of, um, you know, now, now everyone thinks about it as Git repositories, but, uh, you know, there, there, there were a lot of things that came before. Yeah, yeah. What are you, what are you expecting to emerge now, or what are you seeing now that's kind of 
in the same sort of tradition. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm trying to get like, not your, not your picks, but how, how, do, how does, when you, when you apply the filter of your knowledge to the today's crypto industry, what, what are the standouts? Uh, well, when I apply my knowledge to what, and then uh, the, yeah. the phone start. Uh, when, when, when you filter today's crypto industry through your particular knowledge and, and perspective, what are the standouts? What are the projects or problems or solutions that um, like really seem to have their act together in a in a in a unique in a unique way? Because I, I feel like you'd have different picks than many people. I feel like you'd have different gravity, you know. A, set, a different taste, different sense of taste in crypto projects. Yeah, but but, but before you answer, let me get a pen so I know what to invest in, right? Straight after. Uh, the answer is really easy. Get in DeFi insurance. I think DeFi insurance is really where the future oh, is. Oh, hell yeah. Now. Hell yeah. 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 But, hell yeah. <laughs> why, why specifically insurance? Um, I was uh, giving a casual nod to the project I'm in, but um, no. The, I mean, what, uh, and I've, 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 we will talk about that, but also just at face value, couldn't agree more. That's, that's the most slam dunk Use case, absolutely. Well, no, um, I, I was being a bit of a smartass about it. I, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of places where things are getting interesting. Um, you know, I'm specifically, you know, interested very much in both uh, mem coins and also uh, NFTs. I, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of value in uh, what's being done in terms of digital collectibles. Uh, the idea of a digital collectible has been, um, you know, around in one form or another for over 20 years. The idea that it now exists in a decentralized form, it's composable and it can be transferred is amazing. So this is, uh, you know, the, the, I, I think that there's a lot of excitement that people should get uh, from, you know, the, the, the idea of a spawning metaverse. Um, you know, it almost makes every Johnny Mnemonic book make sense at this point. <laughs> In some way, you know, this is the way that we build the future. Sometimes the future is inspired by our fiction. Sometimes it's the other way around, I guess. Um, so um, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the movement to NFTs is, is interesting. I don't necessarily know that all of them have value. Um, just the same, I think that there's a lot of value to, like I said, mem coins. And I, the reason why is because I think they provide convenient um, bumper sticker sort of gateways to bring in popular opinion and popular consensus and popular participation in ways that uh, more complex projects or more complex tokens with more mandate um, it just lose you know the average community um, I can't uh, you know necessarily sell my mother on the idea of you know buying a token that allows her to you know aggregate you know the risk of various you know smart contracts but I can probably sell her on the idea that this token represents you know a dog and she likes dogs mm -hmm. So, um, you know, <laughs> why, do you, I, why, do, why do you why do you think that is? Because, I mean, everybody would understand that in terms of uh, investment value, that the, the former one you mentioned, which sounds all very serious and analytical, right? That will that would probably be the best bet. Why do you think people are more seemingly more willing to, you know, your average person who probably would never get into investments? Why do you think they're more willing to just lob money at the dog coin? Uh, for the same reason, some people pick their favorite soccer team on the basis of team colors. You know, it's 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 whatever the basis, whatever the basic affinity might be. You know, they don't necessarily know the roster. They know that they have to get there and cheer. They want mm -hmm. to show up. They don't want to look like a complete idiot. And uh, mm -hmm. they get behind someone who has you know the colors they like, with a group of people that's probably si more sizable than the you know the, the, than any other you know any other option of the same color. Do 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 you think that? in a certain way harms our idea of value or just teaches us more about what value is 
well, it's a gateway. It's a gateway. It, it, it provides an opportunity for people to learn more about value. I mean, so it, it, you really have to bring people to the venue and find a way to get them and capture them. And, um, you know, I was talking to someone who some bought several hundred dollars of sheep and now is sitting there, you know, with several thousand dollars of sheep. Mm. And, um, you know, as uh, someone in middle school, he feels like he made a good investment, mm. you know, and that that may be the formative, uh, you know, the, the, the formative decision that creates the next Warren Buffett. We don't know. Well, the, <laughs> so, the one we're going around at the moment is the guy who bought eight thousand dollars worth of sheep a year ago is now I, I, I saw this earlier. I'm still in disbelief. Yeah. It's worth five billion b yes i that can't and, be real but there you and go by the way, <laughs> and 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 during the bitcoin miami conference you would hear the same thing about doge right where you have people who typically would not be involved in the crypto economy who got in on this idea of a funky dog coin because of a post by elon musk and uh before you know it they have a new car or a new house or paid off a kid's tuition and uh it was an economic opportunity that they otherwise would not have availed themselves to uh, if not for the accessibility of the concept. Now, uh, you know, that's that's now where they decide. Well, I wanted to say it's fascinating that the dumber version or like the meme version of Bitcoin, which is basically what Dogecoin is, like code-wise, yeah. it's not that different from Bitcoin, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just like wrap a complicated thing in a simple wrapper and it's the same thing Mm. And that one catches that's 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 the mind blowing part to me that people that it just turns out that in practice you wrap Bitcoin in a dog and now it's accessible. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. it, there was no extra fundamental value to the, I mean it's to, it's, lit- it's literally Girard once again, isn't it? I like that, you know, like memetic memetics. It's you know, everybody like for instance, like you know, if you said it's Pokemon coin. You'd be like, well, I like Pokemon. My friend likes Pokemon. He's bought the coin. Uh, but it makes me wonder, like, if you had if you had called the original Bitcoin Dogecoin, would it have needed a Dogecoin? Because, like, it started with people who understood Bitcoin forking it. That would be an Dogecoin. experiment, though. I mean, obviously, you'd never be able to do it. But if it was in reverse, would you then have people who go who would look at that and go, right, this is great. But we need to t- tweak the code a tiny amount, which I think Do- Dogecoin has done. Um, yeah. But we need to give it a serious name for people who genuinely see, like, you know, like you can't have. It seems okay. It seems then that the the common public statement with regard to that is that you can't simultaneously have silliness and fun with like serious tech innovation. You can't be like we're changing the we're changing the economic world. And by the way, this is called like big cats coin. Right, like you yeah. wouldn't, you just would never go, you would never take this. Here. Like if you said, oh, there's this bank in town, new banks started up, amazing interest rates, amazing benefits, great insurance policies, brilliant mortgages. What are they called? Uh, they're called like super happy fun time bank. You go, I don't, I don't like, I, you just wouldn't believe them. You're like, right. you're not have you're not having my money. So there's, yeah. there's a, a relationship between trust and, and that's su- what you would like think. supposed seriousness. That's what you would think. You'd think that, yeah, yeah. But in practice, it's, but in practice, what happens then? Where, where? Is, yeah, I don't I'm, know. I'm, I'm starting to wonder if you wrap a serious thing in a joke, if that's not just if, superior. Or all you around. could wrap a wrap a serious thing in a joke, but you can also so, apply uh, the joke. I'll try this again if you guys will have me. Um, I was not built for <laughs> always. Apparently, was not built for live streaming. It's it's, um, good, it's good to find out now. Yeah, yeah, no. Before I'll, you get I'll, famous. I'll, 
But oh yeah, I see a little red, a little red thing. On oh no, he's back. Show. He's back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, gentlemen, I'm back. Yeah, no, I was just saying that. Um, you know, my my hope would be that those new economic opportunities create the you know create create an option now for those parties to reinvest and get more deeply involved in the community, or maybe get behind another mem coin to drag other people along. So, um, yeah. you know, I think that those are two things that are great. Um, you know, in terms of that, um, people so people get the idea of collectibles. They get comic books and baseball cards, and art, and um, you know, NFT entitlements to gold bars, and uh, things like that. Um, you know, hey, wait, wait, and, wait, hang on. <laughs> There's NFT entitlements for gold bars. Uh, yes, they, they, yes, there it, are. <laughs> isn't that isn't that literally restarting the entire money economy? Because that's originally what money was, right? Um, there are people who transfer gold bars using NFT entitlements. Okay. And, um, you know, in the same way that I guess, you know, pretty soon you could do the same thing with property of other sorts, you know, properties and, car, you know, homes and cars and, you know, portions of homes and portions of buildings. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, there's a lot of opportunity here with the NFT world. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of you, you find that as these uh, conversations get larger, they bring in more people who look less like computer people and more people, you know, who do other things. And that, that's what makes this conversation so much more interesting than traditional software. Hmm. And you what know you, who? Oh, sorry, sorry, Mike. Oh, I was going to say, what do you think the uh, as the, oh, this focus really is like the underlying thing we're talking about here is the future of decentralization. Do you, what do you think the future is for centralization? Do you think it has one? Um, I think that there's a right scope between centralization and decentralization. Like not everything needs to be decentralized. And in many cases, when you decentralize something, you make it more difficult because you, you disaggregate its component value uh, in a way that typically, you know, in a centralized organization or a centralized approach, you have the, va- the, the value benefit of a brand Mm-hmm. Or, or an organizing, uh, an organizing entity to shepherd, uh, shepherd behavior, and at least you know popular path of navigation, so that um, you know not everything is a customer support issue at every point. So it's, um, you know, you, you know, um, interoperable systems tend to start off as uh, I, I think very dense and um, you know uh, less fragmented, and then over time, you know, through luxury. Uh, you know, in convenience, they become more fragmented because of standardized interfaces and, you know, more more popular approaches and, you know, more popular vendors and the need for interoperability. So I think that, um, you know, things that need to be centralized, you know, will stay centralized. Things that should be decentralized will be decentralized. Uh, people will make value judgments about how decentralized, for instance, they want their search engine. You know, um, how censorship resistant do they need their message boards? You know, the, those t- those types of things, um, you know, in different places, um, you know, different people prefer, you know, service over privacy. You know, that's uh, one of those things like with healthcare. you know, uh, people people prefer, you know, in many cases to reach, receive treatment as opposed to knowing that their record is, you know, uh, d- denied to everyone, you know, even in the event of a medical emergency. Um, you know, just the same, though, no one wants their medical record disclosed to necessarily their employer. You know where they might be giving an indication of how expensive they may be. You know uh, for the future plan re-enrollment. So it's um, th- those types of things I think lead to you know questions of, around you know centralization versus decentralization. So it's usually security, you know, um, security versus availability and privacy versus service. Those are really your tension points. 
And uh, those are the things I think that, you know, drag, you know, drag forward in, in the discussion consistently from the, from the beginning of all this stuff. I'm, uh, I'm noticing you use the, like the analogy of tension points a lot. And that's cool. I'm wondering if, do the best solutions always provide a creative or superior resolution to those tension points? Is that the definition of success? Or is that just kind of one of the things like, how, how do you see that relationship? Well, I look at it as, you know, strategic choice, right? You, you, you make a choice, you know, in order to. But uh, I also, I also want to ask more about NFTs and stuff. Cause it's so, it's so funny. NFTs are one of those things like Dogecoin that especially in their current incarnation just look like silliness. And it took me a long time I was so late on NFTs, man. It was like embarrassing. Like I'm early on some things, freaking not early on some things. And well, it's like yeah. you're talking about that. Like as an NFT as property or as a part of a property, that, that makes is sense. that is important. But they've been trying to do that for years, and I think the, the technology is only just caught up. So I think we've yeah. we've had that early NFT phase, and it, it's sort of like a, a wave where it'll be like, oh, NFTs, like that was that fun collectibles thing. And it'll go down, and then people who like like the Bitcoin phenomenon, people who realize the seriousness of it, will then begin to actually create, and it will it will then. So it sort of had that first pump, you know, and then it goes yeah. down, and then it goes right up. And I think yeah. like it will begin to be taken more seriously as they're used for more serious things. It seems to be going through its Do Doge coin phenomena already. Yeah, yeah. I mean. The, the most the more serious use cases are make more obvious sense. It's sort of like that that distinction. Have you heard the distinction between high and low context cultures or languages? Have you heard that no. reference made before? No. So there's this idea that different languages or different cultures have a high context or low context way of communicating. Right. High context means you have to like know the culture and read into the implications of things. It's very sort of oblique. Mm -hmm. and vibe vibe based and mm -hmm. low context is like i am giving you the information the point of language is to transfer information in this okay in this box into yeah, this yeah. box okay um and you, and you think this, you think nfts is extreme like extremely high context i think on the spectrum it's definitely toward the high end especially like the yeah. silly the silly stuff like you have to feel the rhythms of vibes and stuff like it's all about like i was literally talking to a vc about idea market and he was like yeah you know this, this investing in crypto industry is really just much more vibe based than i expected when i started i was like you know trying to be rigorous about financials and details and stuff like that and it's just like no it's you know there's there's really a lot of vibe of vibe stuff going on and that's not just on twitter that's like that's real um so yeah and as far as technical innovation goes the collectible and art and cultural aspects of the nft movement seems to be on the high context end of the spectrum whereas mm -hmm. stuff like DeFi insurance like you put two and two together DeFi comes with new kinds of risks and if you can insure against them then you take away one of the biggest objections to getting involved with DeFi, just just kill it dead right and you obviate the need for perfect smart contracts and perfect security of various kinds just ensure it done it like eliminates the asymptotic gap between the best we can do and perfect 
and that just takes down the, the like objection barrier for people. So DeFi insurance, obvious, perfect, sensible use case and very low context. You don't need to know the vibes to get that value prop. And I'm, I tend to be more inclined to get the low context stuff faster than the high context stuff because I'm a nerd. It's the low context is the domain of the nerd it needs everything spelled out concretely. Welcome back. Hey, sorry, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'll so it's, no. uh, it reminds me, oh, this is going to be so annoying, but I'm going to tell this story anyway. There's a story no, about I... when the, uh, when the conquistadors, or I guess, you know, Christopher Columbus, you know, whoever, you know, came to America and was trying to get the Indians away so that they could just settle and just like, just marching them somewhere in some horrific fashion. Um, all of, all of a sudden, a bunch of the, um, a bunch of the Indians just kind of sat down and just, just refused to run. And it wasn't just like they were tired. They just, they just sat down. And um, one of the conquistador, I, I, I can't think of the politically correct, correct term for this stuff. So I'm just going to say that. Um, asked we'll the chief. I'm, I'm, I'm in California. That's true. Yeah. We'll asked, give you a pass. <laughs> one of one of the invaders, let's say, one of the invaders asked the chief or someone who could translate on the Indian side, "What's going on? Why these guys just sit down?" And he said, "They're waiting for their souls to catch up with their bodies." And I like this framing, and I kind of think maybe you're doing so much productive stuff that your phone is just like, "I need to cosmically protect Michael Beck from stretching the tension between universes too thin here and slow this down. I need to hit the brakes." I, I look at the theory. same way, you know, when there's like a long line, you know, at a toll booth. <laughs> Being yeah. way too productive getting from point A to point B. Need to, need, need, need some time to breathe. I think, that's I think effectively, that's it. Uh, I think that's it. Effectively we're going. I, ho I hope that's the case. If not, uh, well, you know, maybe I just need another phone. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I'm going through the same thing, actually. My phone has got a whole, you know, new personality. I have to feed it treats if I want to get on the Internet. It's crazy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. So, so I, I think I was talking. You were asking me about strategic choice and uh, yeah. you know what it meant. Uh, I think in terms of addressing some of these tensions. And you know, I was just saying that I think that um, you know um, making choices, you know, define who we are. Just in the same way that you know choices adopted by technology define what those technologies can do. You know, and how those technologies scale. So if you have a tech, there are very, very few unopinionated technologies. I mean, there are some unopinionated theoretical technologies, of course, but, you know, very few unopinionated applied technologies. Could not agree more. You know, and that's, that's really more. the way to think about it. Uh, so by the time, you know, you get to, you know, certain things, I mean, if I were to think about an Apple device, an Apple device, you know, like an iPad uh, doesn't have a keyboard, um, you know. Originally, you know, it's it's a hard thing to do a lot of input with, um, but you know, you can consume a lot of media. Um, I would argue an Android device, you know, in some ways is much easier to give input to. Um, but then again, you're producing a lot of input. You know, you're producing a lot of data. So, I mean, even between you know two mobile operating environments. You know, one seems to be an a device for, you know, disseminating data. Another one seems to be a device for collecting data. She's saying the medium is the message. 
um, you know, I think that the, the choice, the, the technology choices, you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, manifest themselves in, you know, what we're, what, what we do and how we use them. Man, I want to go down that rabbit hole forever. What are some <laughs> other, what are, what are some other interesting opinions that technologies display? Cause this is, this is a theme that I really, that really resonates with idea market because it's, because it's an argument. It's, it's, well, it's an, yeah. on that line of opinions, I mean, the inherent opinion of, of, I would say of Bitcoin technology specifically is a distrust of centralized banking, right? Which is why I don't think when when banks such as in the UK, banks such as Santander are trying to create their own cryptocurrency, it's like a contradiction of opinions, right? You, you, you guys don't get to do that as well. Like you can't have both of these things in the same place because it just doesn't work. Um, so there's probably a lot of examples of that, of why things fail is because, yeah, like you're not, on, you're not part of this narrative. You don't get, you don't get to have this opinion. You don't get to have this opinion with this technology. Mm. This, 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 you know, this technology does not allow you. You know, um, blockchain will not allow you. You know, to 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 do a lot of uh, censorship. A public blockchain won't allow you to censor a lot of stuff. Um, a private blockchain will. You know, but well, you know, yeah. once you've once you've accepted it's a public blockchain, you know, censorship is another question. You know, you can go out there with your Zcash and find out. You know, six years later, everyone can read your transactions. Yeah. Why? Right. Because it's a public blockchain. And there's so much trust. This is this is one of the biggest challenges, I think, with privacy solutions in general, especially in crypto, is that it's incredibly trust based. Like only the top crypto privacy experts in the world really know the extent to which something is private. And then everything else is trusting those people to be right. Mm-hmm. So like no matter how good Zcash is, and I all respect to Zuko, I like him. I like him a lot. I can't actually verify that things are as private as he says, or mm-hmm. as you know the Monero's create. Like it's there's no way that that gap is ever going to be bridged because it requires that top ten thousandth of a percent knowledge in order to evaluate it at all. The difference is that the difference here is you have the possibility to find out whether or not that's true. I will never be able to know whether or not the bank actually has my money. That's absolutely true. By <laughs> design, that's a strategic choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Unless everyone goes to run on the bank at the same time and the bank is able to meet everyone's demands, you have no way to know whether the bank actually had the supply available to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I could, whereas I could do the digging into Bitcoin like to a degree where I go, okay, I finally understand it well enough to know that this is what it is. Yeah. It's interesting and that... You can okay. throw infinite resources at figuring it out and then someone else might come along and reinterpret it differently. And uh, then you can have a huge intellectual debate. And, uh, you know, fractionalize the, com- you know, fr- the community gets fractioned, uh, you know, fractionalized. And before you know it, uh, you have, um, you know, two, a fork, like, say, uh, Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> now, feel free to stop me if you don't want to talk about this. But what is the opinion you're building into union, into union finance? Oh, what opinion do we have there? Um, yeah. We, 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 we like to think DeFi should be easy, cheap, and, and less risky. That's, that's really where we started from. And um, our opinion is that DeFi shouldn't just be for whales. That, that's kind of the implication, right? Um, that a lot of um, you know, what goes into transactions, um, you know, if, you, if you look at the nominal value of gas you know, in a lot of DeFi transactions, I mean, that's much more than most Americans save in their 401k on a monthly basis. So, you know, DeFi is definitively a rich man's sport. Um, you know, 
And um, there's not a lot of room for error as a result of that because you go out there and $10,000 can disappear pretty fast. Yeah. Whereas someone can go into the market, buy a share of Apple computer, and they know that the share of Apple computer is okay and everyone else needs the transaction fees and the back end is cleared and they can walk away. They don't have to worry about the subsequent issues of, well, what happens if I lose my private key? You know, uh, Ameritrade or E-Trade will always answer the phone and, you know, make sure that you can reestablish connection with your account. Um, so we, we think that, um, you know, or what happens if a share of Apple really isn't, you know, a real share of Apple. It's a share of something else that looks like Apple, but isn't. It's, you know, really an orange. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that, that that's, you know, another risk in DeFi or, you know, hey, I thought that, um, you know, I thought this bank was secure, but, you know, actually all the vaults open at a certain time and anyone can take the anyone can take the value. You know, that's what happens with smart contract hack. Um, you know, or, um, hey, someone can change, you know, the, the, the clock that everything runs by, you know, and as a result, um, you know, a dollar is not worth a dollar anymore. A dollar is worth slightly less than a dollar. So someone was able to walk away with, you know, $500 million, you know, because of, a, you know, because of a, um, an Oracle hack or, you know, some, some manipulation of an Oracle value. So, um, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of those pending risks that happen when you go from, say, for instance, buying a dog coin to, um, you know, g g going into more sophisticated DeFi scenarios um, that, that users balk at. And, um, you know, our opinion is that users shouldn't have to balk. Uh, we, we think that, you know, um, users should be able to get uh, fair value for their collateral. And uh, that uh, they may not necessarily, there may not necessarily be a time value of money component on blockchain. Uh, I think there's a chain that actually did attempt a time value of money component, but, um, you know, independent of that, there should be, um, you know, th there should be a way for people to utilize their capital more effectively over the, over, over the determined periods where it's locked in, uh, you know, for instance, a lending and borrowing scenario. Um, you know, so we look at that as, um, you know, one place where we think we can help, you know, simplify and make DeFi uh, less expensive. Uh, the other place is uh, definitely around, you know, event and parametric risk. You know, in terms of being able to find ways to move capital outside of, um, you know, what would be traditional um, investment theses on chain and allow people exposure to things that are off chain, um, you know, which would be, um, you know, uh, typically um, providing insurance, for instance, in marketplaces where uh, those marketplaces have sizable defects and traditional incumbents won't provide those insurances. So like flood insurance, plate insurance. Um, you know, um, weather, uh, weather insurance, um, you know, insuring uh, certain types of transport, um, et cetera, where, um, you know, large insurance carriers don't necessarily find, um, you know, cost effective mechanisms for being able to source that capital. But, you know, 150 billion locked in DeFi, you know, is looking to find an adequate return, you know, might be able to address those needs in the marketplace. So um, that makes choices cheaper for, you know, the average consumer. And yeah. uh, so we, we, we like we like that. Uh, we like that a lot. Um, you know, we, we don't like to spend too much time thinking about, um, you know, DeFi for DeFi sake. Although it's really cool. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do. Indeed. Indeed. I really like the idea of. I mean, I was just saying, well, and, and one of your uh, one of your slowdown periods, I was I was telling James that. DeFi insurance is a no-brainer use case. Brings, you know, eliminates a huge objection that people might have when they're thinking about whether to, to participate in DeFi. 
and just makes the whole thing safer, obviates the need for perfect security, which is never going to be possible in any tech stack. Um, but you mentioned a use case here that I hadn't thought that much about that I really like a lot, which is the bridging on-chain and off-chain assets. Because a lot of the time, if you're trying to track ownership or rights on-chain to a, a physical asset off-chain, there's that huge problem of like, how do you know the thing is in the state it's supposed to be off-chain? And uh, I know Materium's working on that and you're working with them on that. Um, but I just, I really like that solution because the on off, the digital physical gap has always been where the most intractable, frustrating problems arise. Like it goes back to printers for me. Mm -hmm. And the printer is the notoriously most finicky piece of technology in the universe. Just checking, taking something from here and getting it down here is like the biggest gap to bridge. And if you're talking about value and ownership, um, that, you know, it, it's the same thing with higher stakes and, and more variables. And if I could pay $10 to know that the paper I spent all week working on, even if it doesn't print, I'll still get credit for it because I've insured it. I've insured its ability to reach the physical world from the digital. I would totally do that. So compound that by like a million for a $10 million asset represented by an NFT and the insurance use case of that, I think, is awesome. Um, am I thinking of that kind of kind of the same way you are? Because I'm just wrapping my head around this for the first time. Yeah, I, I, I lost you for a little uh, for for a little bit in there when you were talking about the printer. Um, but yeah, the printer seems to be where I fall down to, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, cha changing uh, what what is it? The Negroponte example was changing changing uh, bits into atoms is always yeah. problematic. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, but uh, you know. I've been, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there's some good opportunities in that. And, um, you know, a lot of that is using humans to verify and humans to do things and, you know, expressing their consensus in terms of voting, uh, using things like uh, tokens uh, to, um, you know, to, to say whether they think things happened or didn't happen. Uh, which sounds a lot like governance in some ways. It does a little bit or like yeah. a judicial kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like, you know, stuff like when people vote. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, it, it basically then, you know, brings everything back to, you know, collective action. How much do we care about what state that thing off chain is in and how many people can we get to care? Yeah. Mm. So. But I guess you could pay people for caring. I guess that's the material model is to have an expert who cares and certifies and that, you know, he takes takes the risk on it. Yep. Yeah. You have an expert who cares. And you have yeah. people who pay that expert. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that, that's and then, you, cool. and then you need people to warranty in case the expert's wrong. You know? Yeah. Reinsurance, like the, the, the extra, extra layers of it. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think that's awesome. Like I've, I've been a fan of, of, of DeFi insurance as a concept since Nexus Mutual was like first launching their token. I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is going to be a, a thing. But the off-chain, on-chain you know, that blows it even wider open. Yeah, it, it, the challenge is how you couple them with responsibility. You know, how, yeah. how do you how do you make people accountable? I mean, are humans oracles? <laughs> That's... And, and you know, what's the alternative if, if they're not? Uh, well, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So, uh, so I think a lot of machine fi is trying to answer that.
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to return to NFTs for a little bit because I wanted to ask you. It's so interesting because I think of you as a very technically minded person, and yet you you appreciate the meme coin and like the cultural stuff so well. <laughs> it makes if like it makes me it makes me wonder. Like I've, I've, I have this continual question I'm trying to figure out is how do you distinguish the weird silly stuff that's going to take off from just other weird silly stuff? Is there some uh, kind of fundamental analysis of meme coins? You know, there were, growing up, there was always that quirky, cool kid. Yeah. You know, and sometimes people would follow him. So it's, it's all you know? just vibe. It's all just vibes. All just vibes. I, I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I was one of those people who said, yeah, look at the quirky, cool kid. He probably knows what's up. <laughs> so, you know, if you see too many of them going in the same direction, chances are, you know, you, you, you might be onto something. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, I, I don't know what else to ta- what else to say. It takes a pig to find truffles. So <laughs> you got, uh, yeah, you know, that makes there, sense. there's there's some arbiters of good taste. You know, um, you know, clearly clearly there's some run also ideas, right? You, you you see that a lot. You know, in the, and I don't want to you know say specifically one chain ecosystem, but you know, if you look at a lot of what comes through with mem coins on the Binance Smart Chain, you know. It's really hard to arbitrate, you know, to, to be an arbiter of quality, you know, among the, the volume of tokens that are introduced in that in that environment. It's hard. Uh, it's much easier to do that, for instance, maybe, you know, with mem coins that would be introduced in, you know, a, a, uh, a more uh, regimented and uh, better curated environment, like, say, an avalanche. But I don't think avalanche has mem coins. So, yeah. Yeah. But if, well, if anyone from avalanche watches this, they'll probably realize it's a good idea. It probably is because people would think that, hey, that's an arb, you know, this this is a quality mem coin. Yeah. You know, and you, because, because, you know, the, the ethos of the ecosystem is such that it begets that type of, you know, the, that, that uh, disposition, you know, going in. You know, whereas, um, you know, every time I think of another mem coin on, you know, Binance, I wonder, is this a scam? How long does this operate for? When exactly does the dump start? <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, I still think that about Sheeb. I still think mm-hmm. that about Doge, like that, that that question seems to continue to apply even on even on more you know mature chains, right? Yeah, but but you have to remember it's it, it's it's the speed of the dump versus the addition of new wallets. So you have yeah. a velocity you have a velocity question, right? Yeah. So um, you know, as long as there are people not holding crypto, there's still an opportunity for someone else to buy. Yeah. You know, that, like, that's the beauty of these gateways. Yeah. That's really interesting. And uh, NFTs are kind of like the protocol version of that gateway. It, you know, it's yeah. the, the primordial ooze out of which many gateways come. I think that's, that's cool. Oh. Um, there's something special about Dogecoin in that it's existed for a long time. Mm-hmm. And at many points, it has come to be worth like nothing for extended periods, just in bear markets. It was sitting there. And you could buy what would be worth a billion dollars of it today for, you know, nothing close to that. And just I'm I'm floored by how wide open the opportunity is and has been that just sat there, just sat there for so long, just waiting for someone to go. It's a bear market in a bull market. This will be an obvious 
choice. It always like you can look at the chart for the last three bull markets. This has done this parabola. It's at the bottom now. I can buy it with no risk as long as there's a bull market in the future. It'll be a gain. And it's just I, I can't think of a more articulate way to say it than just how much opportunity was just sitting there waiting to be picked up as simply as an object on the table. Just extraordinary. And I can't help but think that there's that kind of opportunity sitting around all the time. And Absolutely. I wonder, yeah. Uh, do you have any reads on what that might be? And I don't mean this in like an investment tip kind of way, but that huge disparity between value and recognition. I mean, that's just got to be everywhere all the time. I mean, I, I think the biggest one, you know, that we see is in our personal data. In the, you know? in, in the like, Facebook or, knows all about you kind of sense or what do you mean? Face, you know, in the, in the way that we give, you know, we, we, we give art, we leave artifacts of our preferences every day, everywhere we go. You know, whether it be, you know, in terms of, you know, where our browser connects or what we purchased or, you know, what we yeah. asked DoorDash or Grubhub to send, you know, send us, um, you know, we don't try to monetize those things because we don't know how to catalog them. We don't know how to find what an accurate price for those things would be. Because as consumers, we don't necessarily know how to, you know, make our, our choices, or our preferences interoperable. You know, how I order something, you know, how I order a pizza and how you order a pizza are two different ways. You know, we order them different ways. We probably would uh, describe them differently. Uh, so, you know, James, you know, who may be a pizza data purchaser, um, you know, needs to have a standard that both of us conform to. And we're better at vesting our, you know, our knowledge and, you know, our preferences with James than it is for us to maintain the, our knowledge and preferences for ourselves. So I think that we give up on, you know, knowledge, intrinsic value all the time because we don't know how to monetize it or we don't see a marketplace yeah. for it. And, uh, yeah, I think personal data is the biggest one. And everyone would say, well, you know, that's just out the gate. Uh, but, the, you know, the bottom line is, you know, there's a lot of data that hasn't been created yet. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. would you say, if I understand correctly, it sounds like you're saying we need something like a Fitbit for data, something that just follows us around and tracks all the things and collects it for us. Then track can, everything. Yeah, track, track yeah. everything. Monetize it all. No. Um, <laughs> but it's well, if we're not going to DoorDash and Facebook and Google, like someone's going to, right? Like you're, yeah. They already someone do. Already is. Yeah, they already right. do. But that's but that's a good that's a, that's an example for me of the same thing that you're seeing in the Doge marketplace. You know, where people look at this and they see it and they have the opportunity to pick it up and it could be worth millions someday, but they don't do anything with it because they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know. Why do I need this? You know, why do I need this dog coin? What, what's it going to do for me? Well, the few people who understood what the dog coin could do in terms of providing a gateway, in terms of being able to provide, you know, financial, you know, independence or whatever else they could peddle, you know, found found a group of people they could market it to. So what did they do? They took the proverbial, you know, furniture they found on the street corner, they polished it up, and they sent it. You know, they sold it over, you know, at a secondhand fair, and that's yeah, free money. That's interesting though, because it changes. You know, you have these functions of um, functions of trade, right? Originally, the original function of trade was the utility function. Unless it had a use that you could discern, you wouldn't trade anything for it because there's no point, right? You would you would only trade. You say, right, I want that thing because I can actually use it. Whereas then we changed to money, which then allowed us to buy things we could use. So now it sort of seems that that's been turned on its head. You're turning that on its head in the sense that we understand Doge is basically inherently useless. But you can then flip that on its head by wrapping it up in a certain way that it then becomes, to, it turns into something with utility 
as you say, it, its utility is as a gateway. And do you, do you think that that's that's happening with more and more things? Is like uh, you you wrap it up in a certain way and and use it basically as an in to reel in all those people who just haven't been brought into the crypto space yet. Like, what is there? What is there? Like piece of bait that we need to find. Yeah, it's like uh, free drinks on Friday, you know, that type of thing. You know, come, come, come to the venues. You know, drinks were always there, but, you know, <laughs> they weren't they getting were... sold because no one was showing up. But, you know, you make them free and someone comes to the door and, they, you know, they may, be, they may buy additional drinks. Um, so it's you know, not that it, every, everybody has a price. It's that everybody has, like, a certain form of value. I think so. Okay. Maybe, that's the, maybe that's the construct. That's the way to think about it. It means more to it means it, it means more to me within context. Like I said, you know, then you may be giving out free drinks uh, versus you know not selling any drinks. You know, the re the revenue is exactly the same. You know, if, if you if you think about it, but giving out a free drink may entice someone to you know to 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 actually pay for the next one. So that's um, you know from the perspective of a Dogecoin, you know, I, I may not necessarily have a lot of value there. But I can entice someone now to open a wallet, and um, you know, because I've now enticed someone to open a wallet, I can give them more of something that has no value, and then at some point they want to be able to participate in something where they might be able to get some value. So maybe they want to play a game, and they say, "Oh, well, what's that other funky coin? <laughs> How do I get some of that?" Then I get them to an exchange. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, and that, that, that's, I think, how the story has gone, you know, with, with, with these things. Um, the question is, how many of them do you need? And the answer is probably as many as it takes to get the rest of the world, you know, on crypto. So, um, you know, we have plenty more to go, I think. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if, if there's like a demographic based one, like, you know, what's, what's Dogecoin for bankers? What's the weird, stupid thing that will make bankers go, ah, you know, now I get it. Now I should cross the threshold uh you know that, that, that's exactly it there's a dogecoin for everyone yeah you know? yeah you know they're also cat coins yes so. <laughs> that's and and if if people collected their personal data then we would know what you know which coin to launch at them i guess to tie, you know, tie in your previous point yeah you know and, and that's um i, I think that the, the, that's where the market still has opportunity for innovation is because there are other things you know than besides dog and cat coins you know, maybe they're rabbit coins. I, I think there's it already is a bunny token. Um, but, you know, you can think about, uh, you know, you can think about, you know, a, very, a variety of preferences and how you meet those communities. Um, you know, you're, you, you already see that in the NFT space, you know, where you see digital collectibles, you know, being targeted specifically, you know, to basketball fans. You know, and you see digital collectibles being, you know, um, sold to comic book fans. And, you know, it, it kind of goes from there. Yeah, I I never felt so optimistic about the crazy weirdness. Like I I understand the actual you know utility now. We're 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 very optimistic about the crazy weirdness. That's uh that that, that that's where all our value comes from. So all the all the value in 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 DeFi insurance is coming from the crazy weirdness. Well, I guess up, up the stream far enough, yeah. Yeah, up the up the stream far enough. You know, it's uh, you know the 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 idea that you know um, you know this the, the, this uh, cryptocurrency, which technically doesn't exist, it's really just a computation of you know bal balances on a ledger, right? You know that reflects you know some form of power consumption and uh, and processing. 
you know, dedicated, you know, to, to, to solving a, a math problem, you know, is worth something. And there are a group of people who believe that, and there are a group of people who don't. And we work with the group of people who do. That's, uh, yeah. And some people would say that's crazy weirdness. And it's, it's not that much crazier than, you know, having a, a paper certificate, you know, someone, someone pointed out, I think it was Christian Kmar pointed out that a, a currency, like a, like a dollar bill is actually a contract. It's supposed to say like the bearer may redeem for something. It's like a, it's like a contract, like a legal mm -hmm. contract. Mm -hmm. And then if you detach it from the underlying asset, then it's not really a contract anymore. It's just kind of nothing. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've kind of lived with that for a while. And the digitization of that, even with credit cards and, and computerized uh, payments of all kinds, PayPal, et cetera, um, it shouldn't be that much of a leap in terms of what's actually, what, what exists versus what's valuable. The, 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 crypto, the crypto innovation is, is not actually weird compared to precedent. No, it's, it's not. I mean, there, there, there are lots of other things you know, very much like that, you know, and unfortunately they, they often in history represent bubbles. And I think that that's been where a lot of our retracing in the crypto community comes from, you know, is the fear of bubble. You know, are we built on firm ground? Are we built on something that's reasonable? Is there enough value that's being driven, you know, in the, in the froth of the market? And, uh, you know, the way that we quantify value is, you know, what else is being built on top of the technology? What are people able to achieve? How is it creating, you know, new opportunities? What is, you know, you know, it, it really comes down to, um, you know, a lot of, um, again, subjective measures, but it, it you know, the, each one of those decisions, you know, determine whether someone else opens a wallet today, you know, they open a wallet, they make a purchase, you know, they buy another dog coin. <laughs> All right. Note to self. Launch a dog coin. Well, note to self. That's uh, that's the moral of the story. Yeah, indeed. In yes. our case, we have a honey badger. We like we like our honey badger. <laughs> so, but no, our you know um, actually one one of the the best compliments um, I, I've received about our project so far has been I saw your mascot and I thought it was a mem coin, but then I found out you did more. I said that's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was just wondering about that. Is the ideal approach actually to wrap a serious project in a joke? Is that um, objectively superior than being face value serious? I, I, I think so. I, I, I think so. At least then you have plausible deniability when it doesn't go over well. This <laughs> mm, this is striking me as pretty anti-fragile, man. We have to, yeah. we have to become yeah. sillier. I've always so been high-minded and full of purpose. Yeah, we'll bring you into the marketing conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm interested. I, I have uh, things to learn here. This is interesting. It's very interesting indeed. Yeah, man. We were talking about pizza, pizza preferences earlier. Do you like deep dish because you're in Chicago? Um, yeah. You know, I actually got into. I actually had an argument with someone the other day about um, whether uh, New York pizza was better than Chicago pizza and why. Yeah, there was no winning that year. No, I was going to say, of course not. You're in the no wrong town, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You're there literally, was no literally in the worst place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's great is, James, it, be, be, being in London, you're able to say that. <laughs> that, that. That the reputation of the place precedes itself. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it yes. is it actually any good though, Chicago pizza? Oh uh, yeah, no, it's 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 good. You know, good. I, I I love it. I love it. You know, it it's 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 quite good. I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still need to be here for a little bit longer. <laughs> but yeah, to to the point of preferences, you know, again, um, as long as there are opportunities to have those discussions, you know, there will be different types of pizza. And, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty sure that, you know, people are going to want to, uh, you know, or people, people are going to want to have a variety of other things along the way, you know. So, uh, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, for instance, in our project, think that there are opportunities for lots of different insurance companies. You know, we think that there are lots of opportunities for lots of different, you know, mem coins. We think that they're, you know, the, the market is too small. And, you know, to your point earlier, Michael, you know, first mover sometimes has an advantage. Other times, first mover has to educate the market and the second mover has the advantage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, there, there are lots of things that we find, you know, where, uh, again, because of the choice of the way the technology was created, uh, it can't necessarily evolve. You know, in the second, you know, after educating the market, it's it's the newer the newer implementations that are able to pivot and take advantage of the of the educate you know the educated customer. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of feeling that's been the case with BitCloud, which technically we did beat them by a considerable margin. So technically we're first, but they did educate the market very 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 successfully in certain respects. And yeah. after after they launched, my VC meetings were way quicker. I did not have to mm-hmm. do the twenty minute. This is why markets for credibility or the future spiel as much. So big, big um, cloud, if you're listening, yeah. thanks. Thanks for paving the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, well, you know, and yeah. keep them as a put, uh, keep them as a footnote in your quarterlies. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. You know. um, indeed. Um, yeah. I, I also wanted, I, I brought up the pizza thing a little bit jokingly, but also cause I'm hungry and <laughs> the, uh, we were talking about pizza originally as an example of personal data. And mm-hmm. I wonder to what extent does having a detailed picture of someone's personal data provide like a way to con- like do mind control on them in like a Skinnerian sense mm-hmm. like to how, how much, how much density, how dense are people? That like if you know everything about them, you can just go poke, and then they go and do this thing. Well, I mean, we saw the uh, we, we we saw the Trump election cycle with Cambridge Analytica. That thirty words or less can tell whether someone's Toyota or Tesla, urban or suburban, you know, college wow. educated or not, you know, and and typify someone into how many hundreds of archetypes. So I Man, mean, I should probably read that thing. That that, that, probably, that became public. Yeah, ooh, I should uh, definitely read that thing. I mean, the re- the research has always been public. I think. Uh, the, yeah. the, you know, the weaponization was what was novel. So, um, you know, so yeah, you, you can do that. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely tell, tell about people you can extrapolate, I guess. You know, the, the try, centralization, try, try decentralization. Not Hillary Clinton, uh, try not to say Hillary Clinton, though, is in the basement of the pizza parlor. Don't do that. <laughs> Going back to the uh, pizza analogy. Right. Yes. <laughs> interesting connection that, that there's a meme coin for you That's a coin there. um there's a oh man i was trying to say something really smart but you know i think some fuses just blew um yeah right so you can you can extrapolate from 30 words 
you know, all this information and all these, all these uh, preferences and stuff. Can you, all right, here, here's what it is. It's in the, on the centralization, decentralization spectrum. Mm -hmm. What's being decided is who has power. And I think it's kind of yet to be decided whether it's better for only governments to have, for example, nuclear bombs, or if it's better for everyone to have nuclear bombs. And nuclear bombs just represent powerful technology. It could be mm -hmm. data on everyone in the world. It could be mm -hmm. um, central banking power, you know, whatever. Um, but we're having, we're, progress seems to involve decentralization, not just in the way that crypto nerds mean it, but uh, the distribution of power from the centralized entities that invent it to basically everyone. Like now we all have giant computers in our pockets, you know? Mm -hmm. It used to be just a thing that, if, you know, a few laboratories had, you know. So mm -hmm. um, I guess that's the thing. Like, do you foresee dangers or downsides in people having as much data as Facebook, kind of like on an individual basis? Because it seems like if blockchain, you know, own your data movements have their way, that's kind of what the future might look like. You know, um, the truth of the matter is I can own everyone's data. I have, I really don't have enough time to use it. Yeah. You know, I really don't have enough time to use it and I barely have enough time to use my data. Well, that, that's because you're doing cool stuff, but there's going to be so many bored people born, you know? Yeah. You know, there's, people, there's people, lot, yeah. people, people, who, you know, people who want to do stuff for other people, um, yeah. you know, people with lots of free time. I mean, you might call them entrepreneurs. <laughs> They go out there. Yeah. You know, they go out there. They try to figure out what to do with all that data, and before you know it, they create a company. You know, but um, yeah, I, I think that as long as you can identify the actors who have the data, as long as you can, you know, correct your data, um, you know, in some ways, you know, control uh, what how, the disclosure of that data. Um, I don't care how many of those actors there are. You know, but I would say, you know, I have to know who they are and I have to be able to change, you know, wrong data, you know, and I should be able to affect the disclosure of that data. Oh, wrong data. That's actually a great point. It might be, you know, like how fighter jets send out flares to deflect missiles and like get them locked onto the wrong signal. Maybe the defense against being having all your data mined all the time is to just constantly be spewing out BS data to confound the data collectors. Man, I, I wish Michael were here. I know yeah, I wish you were here to hear that. Hey, you're a genius. Damn. All right. Well, we'll, we'll give him a minute or two because I really want to see if that's if that's feasible. It's just it's so harebrained, but it also makes some sense. But in all seriousness, Chicago pizza is indeed great. Yeah. So yeah. Like I feel like you guys are really defending it. Like if we if we left it on the note that it isn't that great, like we're gonna you know, stuff's going to go down. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of the underdog because New York is New York, but, um, yeah, man, I'll take a deep dish pizza. I'm like, I'm like super pessimistic on food. Like I'm terrible to talk to about food. Bear, bearish on food. I don't really believe in amazingly tasting food. Well, I've you never do had... live in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's pretty why, <laughs> I but I've been though, I'm saying what I've been, I've been to some pretty good restaurants where like people are like, dude the food here you know it's amazing and it's not british food it's like italian food i like italian food but people are like man it blew me away 
I'm like, nah, I don't believe it. I think most people are lying. Like, I think it's mostly food. Good food is mostly sunk cost. Like, you're going to force yourself to enjoy it. So because you've because you've paid, which is uh, which is what I think a lot of Michelin star food is. I right caveat to that: I've never been to a Michelin star restaurant, and I want to. But like when I'm watching, I'm like, that isn't as good as people are saying. You're all lying, yeah. and then I turn off the TV. And go to- <laughs> <laughs> that that I mean, there is some sense in that reaction. Um, <laughs> I've I've never understood watching watching food shows and cooking shows. It's just like you get all Masochism. tantalized, and then mm, it's it's yeah. yeah, it's it's like porn with less release. Um, right. But in any case, <laughs> well, no, it, you know what? It isn't not for that reason. But like a lot of people watch food programming and eat like, but they're like they're watching Gordon Ramsay like make the best. I don't know risotto ever. They spent ten hours on, and they're sat there with like a bowl. Of, they've got like a bowl of cereal or something, and that you know, totally it's, like, right. it's like tricking. It's like if I just focus on that so much that my brain will believe it. Yeah, no, you're totally like, right. I, you know what I mean. I just think food programming is ridiculous because, like, that you know, what's your average food program? It's like what four recipes? No one's making them. People make like the average recipes, right? No one's making these. Same with cookbooks, yeah. man. I'm I'm going deep into my food pessimism here, but I just people don't use cookbooks. I mean, it's all online now. Like, uh, so people use online cookbooks. <laughs> people don't eat. My, my wife does. Behave. It's true. It's yeah. the main conspiracy. People don't eat. Yeah, it's just it's all sun gazing and IVs. Um, man, I lost yeah. so many threads there. I think. Well, you're on about false data, but I think Michael might be finally gone. Yeah. All right. Well, so. I'm just I'm just signing into uh, Telegram to see if he sent me any messages to uh, right. to hypothesize on that. But let's let's give him let's give him his last comment. I really want to. Oh, he's back. I want to ask him that thing. Okay. Sorry. Hello. Hey, All good. Hello again. Yes. So the, 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 this this time uh, the device decided to let its spirit catch up, and uh, very nice. I think uh, you nice. know we're, we're we're in a good place. Right on. <laughs> so, so I wanted to ask you. Uh-huh. Is it feasible as like a defense against data collection to have like a data spoofing app or something like that? So that if instead of Facebook knowing my pizza preferences, it thinks I'm like a sushi holic and it yeah. just sends out false data all the time to confound it, the. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, um, it's, it's absolutely possible to do that. That's. That's the best defense against data collection I've ever heard. Yeah. Having studied the problem for a whole minute now. Yeah, there, there, there are ways to do that. That's cool. That's fun. Um, Man, there, I've, yeah. I actually I saw someone at a conference talk about how he could fool search engines into thinking that he was a teenage girl who loved ponies. That's what he says. That's what I he com- claims. I completely believe you could do that, but it would take effort. It would be really nice if I had like an effortless thing that I could just go, all right, turn this on. I don't want Facebook knowing that I'm shopping for you know, basketballs right now and just <laughs> there's a, there's a thing. I found there's a of, it. There's a lot of people but, who do but, this. On, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Michael. No, 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 please, please, please. please. Well, one of the things I was saying that someone taught me ages ago, right? If, if a really good thing to do on Twitter specifically is block every single 
advert you see even the ones that are just promoted by companies and eventually you get to this really weird place where the algorithms because you're blocking certain things the algorithm obviously saying oh they don't like that advert so we, but eventually if you keep saying no i don't want to see anything you get to this really strange place where the you don't even the, the adverts have really like no cohesion you're in like a no man's land of advertising and it's, yeah. it's really peculiar the the ad market of last resort <laughs> yeah just like they just well i don't know what this guy likes I don't know. He was offended. He, he 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 was he he was offended by the peanut butter sandwich. We can't pitch that. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Ad feeds as modern art. But but it's uh, true. Uh, it, it's true. I mean, because a lot of um, you know, especially the content you consume is incentivized by the content you've been you know you've consumed in the past. So, and there's no training out of that. I mean, even if we have the same general opinions about things, our news feeds look specifically different on the basis of what we've clicked on. You know, yeah. and um, it's it's you know something that travels with us. I would say that um, you know you could pretty much spoof that idea of you know Mike, you're shopping for a basketball up into the point where your credit card gets the basketball transaction. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. So we can't spoof, mm. we can't spoof the actual transaction, right? You know. Well, that's why people but, like Richard Stallman go on about using cash, right? Yeah, it's untraceable. It's you know uh, there there are easier ways to preserve your privacy than cryptocurrency. Yeah, like don't, every don't, other option, like every other option. literally exactly. every other option. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So for people who think they got a private key and, uh, you know, they're now privacy preserving, uh, not, not, not really. I mean, your transactions are forever on a chain that's shared with everyone else. Yeah. Man, it's been a great pleasure having you. I, I want to respect your time. Um, are you, and, you know, give you full, full permission to excuse yourself. Cause we have, you know, filled the, filled the time that we had set out. But uh, no, I, man, I, I, apologize. I apologize for the time my phone is claimed from us, you know, no independently. Um, but uh, you, you are it. in the enviable, enviable position of having too much, too much to do. And uh, so am I actually. But for some reason, I can do it. I can do it uh, from my desk, I guess. I guess I'm fortunate in that way. But uh, yeah, man, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk and see you and, and hear about how things are going. I love seeing union success just kind of around the world, around the, around the Twitterverse and uh, looking forward to more. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for your uh, you know time and hospitality. It's uh, cool to see idea market take off. So uh, pretty cool to, you know, be connected in this way and actually not, not talk about the project as much as, you know, I usually do when I go on one of these things. So, uh, you know, actually think about, you know, real stuff. Uh, yeah, man. Um, happy, you know. happy to provide one of those little vacations. No, and not to say that we can't talk about the project at some other point, but, uh, you know, this has definitely, uh, definitely been real cool. And I'm glad that you guys do this. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, seeing more, you know, what you come up with. So thank you. Excellent. Cool. Great pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey, take care. Good talk. All right. See you later. Here. Hey, well. man. Bye.